Grace and peace to you, church. Thank you uh, for allowing me to preach the gospel to you this morning. Um, If you would turn with me in your Bibles to the letter of Jude, next to last book in the New Testament, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. So we're continuing our exposition of Jude this morning and hopefully, Lord willing, next Sunday as well. We've given Brandon a little bit of a break as he comes in, probably jet-lagged and really hungry. So um, if you would take some time now just to lift up your hearts to the Lord in prayer and let's ask him to give us light according to his word this morning. The entrance of your word, O Lord, gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. We now, Lord, come to the chief means of worshiping you this morning. We have prayed your word. We have sung your word. And now, Lord, may we receive your word. May we lay our minds to your word, our hearts to your word that we may be changed. Would you please, Lord, grant the hearers ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to believe. And would you grant the preacher strength? He is in much weakness. Strength by the Holy Spirit alone. In Christ's name I ask, amen. Well, this far, thus far in Jude, we have seen several key things relating to the defense of the faith, even in these introductory parts, we've learned what manner of man Jude really was, and maybe that's been a little bit of an eye-opener for you. He was a slave of Christ, and he was a servant and a brother of James. We've seen his deep love for the church. We've seen how he views the church and how she should view herself. And we've also seen what things are needful for us. He says, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. These things are needful for us as we contend for the faith. The last time we were together, we discovered the mindset and heart attitude that we must have toward those with whom we share a common salvation. And I made the point there that we should bend over backwards not to highlight the distinctions we have with other Christians, but to highlight those things in common. And that was the heart attitude of Jude as well. He was eager, he says, to do those things. Well, we come now to the second half of verse 3, and really the main agenda for which Jude writes. So I want to read verses 3 and 4 just to give you some context for those of you who have not been with us. Give you some context behind the second half of verse 3. Beginning of verse 3, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, and here's our text, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Well, if you have an outline in front of you, we're going to cover our text in four points, Lord willing. First, we'll see the urgent call to contend. Jude gives us an urgent call to contend. Secondly, we'll see the cause to be defended. What are we actually contending for? Third, the grounds of our defense or the justification for this uh, defense. And then lastly, fourthly, the nature of our duty. How are we to, to act? What's the heart attitude behind our defense of the faith? So first of all, first point, the urgent call to contend. Jude says, I found it necessary to write. Now, whatever he was going to say to them in the former communication about their common salvation, he now redirects this. He, he redirects to this urgent appeal to them in light of a present danger. The church was facing 
false doctrine. They were facing false teachers. These teachers, as verse 4 says, have crept in unnoticed. Now, as some translations have it, the word necessary or needful carries with it this idea that the present circumstances in the church pressed Jude from the outside into this situation. Heretics were in their midst, and this really contrasts with the eagerness that he wanted to to address with them in the first half of verse 3. He was prepared and eager to write to them about a common salvation, but there was something that he saw was a necessity in which he should act upon. And this says much about Jude's attitude toward controversy. He didn't go looking for this situation. There are many uh, ministries, it's kind of strange to call it a ministry, where they're heresy hunting. Entire ministries are dedicated, devoted to sniffing out heretics. Jude's view to the truth was this battle came upon him. He wasn't out hunting these things. He wasn't out looking for a controversy. The situation found him. And again, this word necessity means it was an imposed constraint. Jude says, necessity was laid upon me. What was happening in the church called for a response. Calvin says this, a dog barks when his master is attacked. I would be a coward, he says, if I saw that God's truth is attacked and yet would remain silent. A dog barks when its master is attacked. Christians bark when the truth is assaulted. But we don't go around barking all the time, right? Jude was no different. He found it necessary to write to the churches because they were under attack. Well, it begs the question of us. Can we, can a faithful Christian Christian, see another man in danger and hold his peace? Can we see someone threatened by heresy and hold our peace? We are to be, as the text says, merciful, people of peace, people of love. And those things Jude said must, says must be multiplied in us. However, we are not to be silent. We must not confuse those two categories. Not argumentative, but forthright. Paul says plain openly stating the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. This was the same spirit that existed in the Apostle Paul in Acts 17. Do you remember the account? He's waiting for, I believe, Barnabas. And as he's waiting, he looks out and he sees the city is full of what? It's full of idols. He looks out and he sees the city is full of idols. People are worshiping a false god. They're giving their allegiance to a false god. And the text says that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw the false idols. The truth of God was being attacked. Idols sat on public display for all to see. Now what's telling about that account is he doesn't run to the Greek philosophers first. Do you know where he begins? He begins in the church. The text says he first reasoned in the synagogue. Paul saw this as a theological problem and squarely laid at the feet of the believers in Rome, in Athens, forgive me. This brings me to an observation. This necessity of which Jude speaks tells us something about Jude's view of the truth. Remember, he originally desired to write to them about a common salvation, but this necessity was laid upon him. Something more needful at the time arose in his heart. One Puritan puts it this way. He that cries out against old errors, not now upon the public stage, fights with ghosts and challenges the dead. What are we getting at here? There are many Christians and even ministers of the gospel who, in their zeal for their pet truths, totally ignore certain things that have set the house on fire. Their zeal for the truth 
strangely robs them of their usefulness. Jude says, I wanted to share with you the truths of our common salvation, but I had to redirect my purposes. There was something more needful in front of me. As Christians, those who have been called to contend for the truth, we need to realize that we are useless if we are arbitrary. Does that make sense? If we're disconnected from the social issues of the day, if we've just relegated that to uh, philosophers and um, psychologists to handle, we've disconnected ourselves from the very thing God has called us to do, to contend for the truth. We can't be arbitrary in our contention for the truth. It is a cheap zeal. If we go on about everything but that which is staring us plainly in the face. We can be hot about all sorts of issues theologically. We can debate the finer points of Trinitarian theology. But if atheism and and transgenderism and woke thinking is running amok in our culture, what do you think is most needful to address? What do you think is most needful to help the church build up in their thinking? It's that thing that's staring them right in the face. This doesn't make us pragmatic or trendy. It makes us useful. It makes us useful. To put it another way, it makes us physicians of the soul, skilled in the word of God. And Jude is proof of this sort of thing. He wanted to do one thing, but his pulse on the church made him do another the proverb is true. I love this proverb. Proverbs 25, 11, a word fitly spoken or spoken at the proper time is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. They are fitting words for a present illness. We, we must mine for the truth, but let us be aware of where we're mining for the truth and what things we bring back to the surface. This fact, I think, of Jude redirecting his course was also a recognition of the providence of God. Everything has a season, right? Solomon says that. Everything has a season. And for that season, there are fitting words. One Puritan says, duties are best done when we see they are necessary. Duties are best done when we see that they are necessary. So we see something here of the necessity of this appeal. We can't just go about our Christian lives with our heads in the sand. We can't go about debating our pet topics. Pardon me. We can't go about ignoring the things that are setting the house on fire. We may be interested in Baptist history and theology and all of those things that make us particular But we have to be men and women who have a pulse on the culture as well. We have to be willing to divert course and address those things that are right in front of us. Well, also this necessity is an appeal. You see that there in the text. I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, but I found it necessary to write appealing to you. Appealing to you. This word signifies urgency, exhortation, encouragement for the church to come alongside him in this contention for the truth. Jude saw the danger, and he appealed for help. This word appeal is one of the principal ways that the New Testament communicates a moral instruction to us. This was not simply a suggestion by Jude. This was a moral appeal. In other words, if you don't answer the call You're sinning against God. If a dog barks, if if his master is assaulted, a dog barks, right? There's a moral obligation in this appeal. However, there's something underneath the surface of this text that is startling. And I don't know if you caught it as we read it. There's something underneath the surface, the context that frames this sentence. And if we miss it, we're going to miss a very significant portion of Jude's intentions here. 
What's behind this appeal, this moral obligation to contend? It's the sad fact that the churches were asleep. The churches were asleep to the truth. They were completely unaware of the danger that lurked in their midst. If they were aware, let's grant that position. If they were aware, they were at the very least complacent. But we know the churches were asleep. How do we know that? Look at verse 4. Certain people have crept in what? Unnoticed. No one creeps in your house unnoticed unless you are asleep. The churches were asleep. Jude sees the danger. And he also sees a church that is at best sleepy and at worst asleep. And he appeals to them to wake up. Wake up. And it's a peculiar state of the church to be in. Uh, If you've ever read the Song of Solomon, there's this interesting verse in chapter 5 where the church confesses this peculiar state of its existence. It says, I was asleep, yet my heart was awake. I was asleep, yet my heart was awake. She, the church, seemed to be at peace and quiet and even sensible of her sleep. But I think she was found willingly sluggish and couldn't enjoy that profound communion with her beloved when he came to knock at her door. Now, being asleep, she is completely vulnerable and open to attack. That's probably the most vulnerable state you exist in, right? When you're asleep. Yet she still had a heart for her beloved. It's a strange state that the church exists in many times. And this was the state of the church in Jude's day and many churches today. While we we are asleep, beloved, what does Matthew 13 say? The enemy sows tares among the wheat. Now, this fact also tells us much about Christianity in the earliest pages of Scripture. It was riddled with the same problems we have today. The early church was riddled with the same problems we have today. Paul had his Galatian heresy to deal with. Peter had his, as we read in 2 Peter, his warning against false prophets. John had to battle with these proto-Gnostics in 1 John. There are no new issues in the church, beloved. Just things that are a new version of an old scene, I could say it that way. There are no new issues in the church. You know what Ecclesiastes says about this. What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. By this fact... I'm using Lewis here. This checks our chronological snobbery. This checks our chronological snobbery. What do I mean? There's this idea in many Christians' minds that the early church and its theologians were somehow purer and more accurate. This is simply historically misinformed. We may like specific figures from the early church. But those men are miles away from the purity and clarity of the apostles. We may have our pet figures, Clement, Polycarp, Justin Martyr, all those people in the early church. We may think those people are the clearest thinkers, but history tells us something different. Jude had to appeal to the church to contend because they not only did not notice the heretics in their midst, they were also in danger of perverting the grace of God. They were in danger of perverting the grace of God. This is what the false teachers in verse 4 were all about. They pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. Well, this leads me to one plain question for us. Are we asleep? Are we asleep? 
If we are, then we must wake up. We must wake up. Wake up, Christian. Here is your trumpet call. Here is your spiritual reveille. We all know what that is, right? Through this text, the Holy Spirit is calling you to wake up. This is the entirety of Jude's letter. A spiritual bugle call to war. Have you been saved from the fires of hell? Have you been saved from the deception of Satan? Then you have been called into the fore of battle. Wake up! Have you been given the light of the gospel in a dark world? Are you sustained by his spirit? Has your heart maybe cooled off after all these many years of walking with Christ? Meh is the order of the day. Doesn't really matter. Kesara, sarah. What will be, will be. I pray against these things in your life. I pray against them in your life. Wake up. Is the truth precious to us? Then we must wake up. Will he leave you? Will he forsake you? No, then wake up. Grab your weapon and go to war. Join the battle. Contend for the faith. You have been called to wake up. Hear the word of God. You know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Wake up. Souls are at stake. Wake up. Beloved, there's no indistinct sound in this bugle call. If the Christian is not in the fight, when their master is attacked and they do not bark, they are asleep and they may be numb to sin. Let us not use the sovereignty of God as a pretense for lethargy, indifference. He'll sort it all out. What use am I in the fight? You and I must wake up for the battle. And I pray God give us the strength to answer Jude's appeal. So it is an appeal. This necessity is an appeal. A moral obligation. And it is an appeal to contend. Being awakened, we must therefore contend for the faith. We must not fool ourselves here. This word is where we get the English word agony. Agony. It's the imagery of one involved in arena combat, struggling to survive. We don't contend from our lounge chair. There are no armchair quarterbacks in this fight. We're not calling the shots for everyone else. We must enlist ourselves. We contend with actual error, real heresy, natural enemies of the gospel, real men and women who hate God, who hate the church, who hate everything holy. This battle is as close as our skin. You may not have gone looking for this fight, beloved. And I pray you don't. That's not the attitude of a Christian to go looking for the fight. But you must contend when you hear the bugle call. It is time for valiancy and agony. Our God is with us. So this is an appeal to contend. It is agony. But it's also an appeal for you to contend. You to contend. Who is to contend? It's plural. You, the church, Trinity Reformed Baptist Church is to contend for the truth, the church and every saint in it. Not just the minister, but the homeschool mom. 
Not just the physician, but the plumber as well. Not just those comfortable in crowds who don't freak out standing in front of people and speaking, but also the introvert. You must contend. Every saint is called to mercy, to peace, and to love because every saint is called to contend. This truth has been handed down to us to defend. Look at the text. I appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. God gave this to you. Truth is not only discovered and owned in our midst, but it is defended by us as well. I think a plain point comes up here. Have we personally owned the truth? Have we personally owned the truth? I don't believe that we will ever contend for what we do not personally own. If you have not personally owned the truth, then you will not contend for it. We will not endure the struggle unless we feel it in our bones that we must speak. And we ought not to fight unless it is necessary to fight. Jude felt the necessity to contend. Do we? Do we, beloved? Well, this brings us to our second point, the cause to be defended. The text reads, interestingly, in the original, something like this. The once for all delivered to the saints, faith. The once for all delivered to the saints, faith. Jude has the preservation of something immovable in mind against all these new ideas and new revelations of the heretics. What, we, what are we called to contend for? First of all, see that it is the faith. Now, the article used here, the faith, says something very important. It is the one true faith. It is a definite body of doctrine and the entire body of doctrine that has been delivered to us in Holy Scripture. This is the thing for which we should contend. Now, this fact rules out speculation, opinion, ceremony, tradition. It even rules out, quote-unquote, your faith. You're not called to contend for your faith, your version of it. You're called to contend for the faith given to you by God. It's that entire body of doctrine delivered by the Holy Spirit to us. We're called to contend for the truth of the Trinity, the doctrine of the covenant of grace, predestination and election, creation, the person and work of Christ, the doctrine of man and his nature, repentance, imputation of sin, the doctrine of grace, free grace alone, the person and work of Christ, the doctrine of hell and heaven, perseverance, sanctification, and the glorification of the saints, the resurrection of the dead. Everything, everything, everything the gold and all its dust, as one Puritan would say, is to be contended for by the Christian. Nothing is to be added to this. Nothing is to be taken away from this. No supposed new revelation modifies it. No tradition of man changes it. It is the faith. Now, this fact, I think, is made plain by the subsequent descriptions given to us of the faith. What does Jude go on to say? I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This faith is said to be a faith that is delivered or handed down to us, as the NAS says. This means it originated in God. It was delivered by holy men to the church. You know the passage. 
No prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1, 20 and 21. Paul states it elsewhere like this. All Scripture is breathed out by God. It is a plain fact of this faith that it has been delivered to us and has its origin in God. No man made this up. Therefore, no man can modify it. Now, being delivered, who is it delivered to? It's deposited or delivered to us. The faith has been entrusted to us to guard. We are the the passive recipients of this faith. And this faith is fully and finally embodied in the Holy Scriptures. The church is called a pillar and buttress of the truth because the gospel is both defended and spread through her. Listen to Calvin on this point. Calvin says, Is not the church the mother of all believers? Does she not regenerate them by the word of God? educate and nourish them through their whole life, strengthen and bring them at length to absolute perfection. The office of administering doctrine, which God has placed in her hands, that's why we call ministers to the gospel ministry, is the only instrument of preserving the truth that it may not perish from the remembrance of men. We are here listening to the truth Because God has seen that this is the instrument of preserving the truth. And we ought to thank God for the grace of that gift. We ought to thank God for the grace of that gift. This is the voice of God to us, the Holy Scripture. Well, further, this faith is said to be once for all delivered. So it's delivered to us. Its origin is is in God. It's Its recipient is the church, the saints. But it says that this faith is to be, is once for all delivered. Now this word once for all is the word hapax, hapax in the Greek. Uh, If you've heard of a hapax legomena, probably not. Uh, That's a thing once spoken, okay? But the translation here comes out something like this, once for all. As a number, it means one. As it pertains to an occurrence, it means a single, decisive, and unique occurrence. In reference to the faith, it is the faith that is delivered once for all time. Another way of saying it is once and never again, finished, permanent. The deliverance of this body of doctrine which is sufficient for all of faith and life, is never to be repeated. Once for all, delivered to the saints. To put it in Pauline terms, anything added is another gospel. Galatians 1.6. Anything added is another gospel. Anything taken away is another gospel. Once and for all time, the faith has been delivered, never to be altered. When the canon was closed, beloved, listen very carefully. I'm going to be so plain. Nothing more needs to be said. Nothing. It is once for all delivered to us. It is sufficient for us. Now, having said that, We must face one great tragedy of modern evangelicalism in light of this truth. The faith being once for all delivered rules out any and all speculation about continuing revelation. The faith being once delivered rules out all speculation of continuing revelation. Our text deals a death blow to all arguments about tongues or prophecy being used today. You have to wrestle with this here. If you're into numbers, this text in Jude 
is at odds with over 644 million professed spirit-filled Christians. Roughly 26% of global Christianity. I'm speaking of Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement. This is one group that claims scripture, whether they would say it outright or not, is not enough. This statistic only increases when you consider many others today who are affirming continuing revelation or equate their emotions and experience with the truth. All supposed new revelation whether it be a tongue or a prophecy, can only be branded one thing. Strange fire. Listen. Virtually every false teacher that has ever existed, virtually every um, supposed cult leader known to man has They've all done one thing. They've all claimed access to new revelation. Every false teacher, every cult leader has all claimed new access to new revelation. Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Scientology, Word of Faith, Jim Jones, David Koresh, Joel Osteen, Creflo Dollar, Benny Hinn, T.D. Jakes. I'm doing it, folks. I'm naming names. Joyce Meyer, Paula White, Kenneth Copeland, the entirety of the TBN network, and on and on and on, 644 million strong, all have claimed to have new revelations. All have abandoned the faith once for all delivered to the saints. If you add to it, it is another gospel. All exploit with false words. It was someone, think about this, it was someone cut from this cloth that was on the evangelical advisory board of our former president of the United States of America. They're in that list I just named. And they delivered the invocation at his inauguration. Whatever God was invoked, it was not the God of the Bible. I'm willing to stand there. Abandon the truth of the faith, and you will find yourself attached to nothing but the subjective emotions and experiences of men. If you're not persuaded, beloved, if I've stepped on your toes, that's okay. I still love you. We can talk about it after the sermon. You can write me an email. I'll still love you. But if you're not persuaded, you have to wrestle with the text here. Once for all means something. Once for all delivered means something. I think the force of the words are too strong to deny. One theologian said this. If you cannot identify any voices as false, it is not because you're not exposed to them, but because you're falling for them in some way. The question is not whether you ever hear the voice of false teachers. You do, and probably every day. Go check the religious section of Kroger. Pick up those books. The question is whether you can discern which messages are truly false. End quote. This faith that we have, that we've been called to contend for, has once for all time, tattoo it on your heart, once for all time delivered by God to us. End of story. We want to say with Isaiah to the teaching and to the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. I'll go to Calvin in my final words in this diatribe. He says this. 
we ought to ascribe to the word such a high authority that we shall venture boldly to despise the whole world if such word be opposed by them. For if even angels should do this, we might condemn them also by the authority of the word. If an angel from heaven, says Paul, preaches anything else, let him be anathema, accursed, accursed. This faith has been once for all delivered to us. And it's the faith delivered to the saints. And I think we can say here, they and they alone have an independent, personal, immediate knowledge of the divine objects of faith. It's not been delivered to the government to contend for. It's not been delivered to corporations to contend for. It's not been delivered to the heathen and the scoffer to contend for. It's been delivered to you. It's been delivered to you. Who has a greater interest in preserving the truth but the saints of God? Who has greater faithfulness to the truth than those who have been born again by a living seed, the word of the living God? No one else is fit to receive the faith than the saints. No one else is fit to contend for the faith than those who are holy. There are... There are no other people more fitting than you to speak from the heart about these things because you you felt the power of the change in your own life. You must contend for the purity of this faith. You are God's agent of preserving it. You have to guard it with precision and power. You must propagate it far and wide. One theologian says it this way, those who are partakers of God's nature are part of God's cause. Those who are partakers of God's nature are part of God's cause. Holy people for holy things. Holy people for holy things. May we not go beyond what is written, beloved, 1 Corinthians 4, 6. This brings us to our third and fourth points. Be a little more brief here. So we've seen the urgency of the call to contend for the truth and the cause for which we must contend. We now come to the grounds of our defense. By by grounds, I mean the reason or justification. Why contend? Why should we do this? Now, this is evidence more, I think, more particularly, I think, in verse 4 and following when Jude kind of spells out this particular thread of the false teachers. But I think we can summarize it this way. There are always lurking in the shadows three great threats to the truth. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world hates the truth, beloved. It's an avowed enemy of the truth. If it does not outright oppose the truth, it will try to seduce you secretly to compromise. That's the case before us here. The flesh is weak and is wicked. And because it's weak, it's prone to forget. It's prone to deteriorate or to pervert the faith. I think it's over 250 times in the New Testament the word remember is used. Do you know why it's there so many times? Because we're prone to forget. The flesh is weak. We need a faith that has been once for all delivered but also the devil is malicious and always scheming. Rarely, I would say, does Satan ever approach us openly on the battlefield. That's not his nature. It's not even the nature of his name. He is covert. He is calculated. And instead of approaching in an openly vile way, he suggests, he introduces doubt rationalization, and alternative. He allures with those things. He proposes innocence, which leads to indulgence. So these are, in brief, the grounds which justified Jude's appeal for us to contend. Certain people had crept in unnoticed, and they were perverting the truth. 
the world, the flesh, and the devil were at work. Well, lastly, what is the nature of our duty? What is the nature of our duty? Some of your versions say earnestly contend. I believe that's the NAS saying that. The ESV just says contend for the faith. But the idea that's caught up in this word contend is earnest contending. What does it mean to earnestly contend? I think it means three major things. First, it means that we must make a diligent search for the truth. We must make a diligent search for the truth. One Puritan said, you cannot fight blindfolded. You can't fight blindfolded. Now, this does one great thing for us. It makes us humble in the fight. Proud people, strangely enough, are the most defensive people. It's usually because they have the slightest ground to stand on and really the, no reason for what they assert. Proud people are normally the most defensive people. They're all heat and no light. We could say it that way. But Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3.15 that we must have a reason for the hope that is in us. We cannot have that reason unless we have diligently searched for the truth. That's the nature of our contending, of our duty. Second, I think it means we must own our profession no matter the cost. No matter the cost. We must own our profession no matter the cost. Though the truth will always cost us. It always costs us. I've I've talked to people who have uh, wondered about why in the world I drive 45 minutes to church when there's 40 churches five minutes away. And my normal response is um, the Queen of Sheba traveled far to hear the wisdom of Solomon. Another way of saying that is the truth will always cost you. It will. It will always cost you. It'll cost you time. It'll cost you money. It'll cost you sleep. It always costs you in some way. But it does not cost every man the same. Some have made arguments for the truth with their mouths, and others have made arguments with their lives by their very blood. One Puritan says this, Disputations of doctors do not commend the truth to the world so much as the death of martyrs. Disputations of doctors do not commend the truth of the word, the truth to the world so much as the death of martyrs. Perpetua commends Christ more powerfully to the conscience of man than John Owen ever will. Owen himself admitted of that unlearned tinkerer named Bunyan, John Bunyan, He said this, and Owen was the theologian of theologians and still is in my mind. He says of the tinkerer, If I could possess the tinkerer's abilities to grip men's hearts, I would gladly give in exchange all my learning. All my learning. Bunyan rotted in a jail for what he believed, but he smelled like scripture. He was saturated. He was a, as some men said, a living Bible. Both men were saturated with God's holy word, but in very different and useful ways. We have not been called to be a John Owen. We may have been called to be a John Bunyan. Are we saturated with the scripture? And are we willing to own our profession no matter what it costs What did Bunyan say? Something like, I would rather have moss grow on my eyelids than deny the truth as he sat there. But thirdly, it means we must contend for holy doctrine with a holy life. Holy doctrine with a holy life. I'm going to say this slow. The greatest threat to your lack of effectiveness 
and being a contender for the faith is not your intellect. It is your holiness. The greatest threat to your lack of effectiveness in being a contender for the faith is not your intellect. It is your holiness. We have to realize, beloved, that the world will take a lesson from our lives more quickly than it will from our lips. It will take a lesson from our lives much faster than it will from our lips. By our lives, sin is authorized in the minds of others. One Puritan says it like this, Who would count a thing wholesome that comes from a leprous hand? As we contend for the faith, our hands must be holy as we hold out the word of life. Either your doctrine will make your life blush or your life will make your doctrine blush, end quote. Jesus put it better than this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world, a city Set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand so that it gives light in all the house. In the same way, beloved, let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Beloved, we must beautify the doctrine of God our Savior by walking in holiness. We, the greatest threat to the effectiveness of this con contending for the faith is our holy lives. There's no other way around it. Well, in closing, we've considered the urgent call to contend, the calls to be defended, the grounds of our defense, and the nature of of our duty. I pray that these words were in some way stirring to you, that you may go meditate on these things. Again, if I've stepped on your toes, let's talk about it afterward. Uh, what I intend to do in the next sermon, God willing, is to set before you an example of a saint who I think exemplifies this uh, contending for the faith in an excellent way. It's a man who I've spent more and more time with over the years and a man who I've grown to love by spending time with him. And so what we'll do next time, and I think this is warranted by scriptures, we'll consider the life of John Newton. Uh, John Newton. If you don't know much about him, you will next time. So let us pray together. Lord, much has been said this morning. Much may be forgotten. I pray that it's not. But if you would, Lord, please, by this, the grace of your spirit, bring to remembrance these things as we wrestle with these truths. We have not stood on our own understanding. We have not leaned on it this morning. We have trusted your word as plain and clear. So help us now to understand it. In Christ's name, amen.